You're listening to the Burst Ball Podcast. Burst Ball, talking up the Scottish game. Hello, you are listening to the Burst Ball Scottish Football Podcast with me, your host, Hamish Carton. Except today, I am not your host. Because due to a lack of numbers in the Burst Ball squad and several hangovers, we will not be bringing you our usual weekend preview show. However, save your disgust for later because right now you're about to listen to two very good interviews that Lewis Kemp and Callum Scott from the podcast have conducted over the past fortnight or so. First up, for about 25 minutes you'll hear Lewis Kemp chatting to the legendary Sir Tom Devine. Lewis introduces his piece just before he starts so I'll let him do that I won't take any of his thunder away and then afterwards an interview of again about 25 minutes where Callum Scott the legendary Callum Scott speaks to Kilmarnock former Kilmarnock and Clyde and current Derby County midfielder and Scotland international Craig Bryson it's a really revealing interview you need to put up with some loud typing in the background for about the first five minutes of it but after that it sounds much better and it is a really revealing good interview the Sir Tom Devine one is up first with Lewis and it is equally as good so enjoy them Lewis speaking next then Callum thanks very much to the guys and um, I'll speak to the other side Today I had a lengthy conversation with Sir Tom Devine we spoke about the recent vote to repeal the Offensive Behaviour at Football Act, his thoughts on the Act, why the Act was forced through to begin with, plus what the future holds for this piece of legislation. Also discussed was the possible link between the Scottish national team and the recent rise in Scottish nationalism, and whether being a fan of Celtic or Rangers had any bearing on your views with regards to independence. Now, Sir Tom is regarded as the leading authority in the history of the Scottish nation, you might know him as a guy who features on pretty much every old firm documentary ever made. Uh, certainly though this was an interview I really enjoyed doing uh, and I hope it's an interview you enjoy listening to. Thanks. The Offensive Behaviour Football Act, it was um, in, in a vote, in a recent vote, it was uh, repealed. Um, you're obviously you know, very knowledgeable about this particular uh, kind of topic. What is your, uh, what were your kind of immediate feelings when you heard this, this news? Well, it's very good news. Um... I've um, been opposed to the legislation from the very beginning. Um, it's, I think it's to some extent unworkable in, in a sense of real justice because the word offensive um, is uh, something to some extent which is in the eye of the beholder. So it's very difficult to define it in law. Uh, and I know that a lot of sheriffs have a difficulty with it, which is one of the reasons why it's several of the young men who have been prosecuted under this act have actually been liberated uh, when it comes to when it comes to the actual court process, the court process itself. Um, and the other thing is that I think it was a it was a question of kind of legislation on the hoof because the the government that is the SNP government at the time. Uh, was very concerned, given the amount of publicity it was given to certain incidents, was very concerned about Scotland's international profile, um, particularly since we were in the early stages before the 2014 referendum. Uh, so uh, I think it was bad law, and it was triggered by a desire to 
um, what they thought was lancing the boil of something, which is of you know its causes are much more fundamental. The, these behaviour of these football fans, uh, if it is deemed offensive, uh, is a reflection of something deeper in Scottish society. Yeah, it's interesting you kind of talked there about um, the SNP maybe done this because of um, how they were maybe perceived abroad, and that's something certainly um, you know, being a football fan and seeing football how, how football authorities kind of work. They do seem to um, take a lot of stock into how um, they are perceived by other associations or other countries. Do you think um, other countries really care? Do you, th- do you think that's maybe exaggerated to an extent, or? Well, it, it wasn't so much. Um, well, it was partly partly other countries, but I think it was partly the reputation of Scotland, um, and especially given the, you know, the um, the background to the Scottish National Party, that you could argue they're much more sensitive about attacks or um, insults uh, to the Scottish nation than maybe Labour and Tories and Lib Dems uh, might might be. Because their, their, um, their, their ethic has always been, we stand up for Scotland. So it may have, if, if there had been a different majority in, in Holyrood, there could have been a different outcome. I mean, going back to that period, of course... Um you know, you did talk about how there was a lot of kind of pressure from the media. There was a, almost a kind of frenzy at that time. Well, um, there was a kind of witch hunt that was going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the, there was a, a demand. Um, there was a demand, really, to. It was almost a scapegoating process going on, uh, I think. And you know, they took the proverbial hammer mm. to crack the nut. You see, the thing about law is. Um, apart from the academic uh, analysis of, of, of professional lawyers, um, it's got to be um, the, the processes which are decided have got to be met with consent. Otherwise, it's unworkable. And a lot of people didn't feel, rightly or wrongly, didn't feel that they could give consent to this legislation. Um, and uh, that's one of the reasons why it's got into such difficulties. I mean, what would have been the correct course of action at the time? Would it have been not even to take any action and just kind of rely no, no, on the laws that were already in place? You know, I've always thought before that legislation that there was a, you know, a problem of behaviour at some of these matches. And uh, you know, some of the songs that were sung were, were, were vile and uh, racist and uh, totally unacceptable. But there was legislation on the statute book, um, apart from breach of the peace, which has been there for eons of time. There was also the um, uh, the development of the breach of the peace legislation in 2003 where you could be given a, a, a much more severe sentence if you were engaged in what was called sectarian breach. Um, that was regarded as enhanced criminality. Um, so my view is that uh, the legislation was there and the problem was the police force in Scotland um, were not active I think you'll probably notice that in the last couple of years, certainly in the last year, although they don't necessarily take action at the time of the matches, they now have sufficient technology um, and, more importantly, the political will to deal with people. You, you may have seen in the press that several weeks and sometimes months after incidents, um, uh, people are being arraigned and charged before the courts. And that's all to the good. The problem with the, with the legislation before um, uh, 
the Offences Behaviour Act uh, was not that it was um, ineffective. The, the, the prosecuting authorities, and in particular the, priest, the, the police, uh, were not operating it satisfactorily. Now there seems to be more, there seems to be more um, evidence of that. So I think it's, that makes it even more timely that we should ditch this legislation because it just um, often criminalises young men who have just been behaving stupidly. I think not even just that, but as well, but I think from you know, the perspective of the police, I mean, you know, sometimes it's, you know, a good, you know, 10, 20,000 people that are chanting these songs and you can't arrest everyone, you know. It's... No, um, absolutely not. And as I said, it's very interesting that they don't seem to be doing much arresting at the football matches, but certainly when they have some evidence, um, they do try to act uh, afterwards. And uh, in my view, is you can't arrest 50,000 people, obviously. But you can certainly arrest some of them, and you can take very, very extreme action against them. And also the, um, the, uh, uh, the combination of knowing what people are sitting at these matches, plus technology, could easily ensure that um, the clubs also uh, could take action. Uh, and I think if you, if you, if you deliver um, serious uh, uh, judicial process, against the minority of these people, the majority will soon fall into line. What about the um, kind of communications part of the bill? Um, obviously, that deals with... Um... Well, I've, I've, often, I've, always, I've always felt a bit more tepid about that. Yeah. Um, because it, you, you could argue that... You could argue that um, this is something new, you know, that the internet has only been around for a few years. So it could well be that some additional legislation might be necessary for that, uh, and and uh, but I, you know, you would, I would have to know more about the specifics of that aspect of the legislation. Certainly, some people in my respect in the legal profession um, are um, a bit more sanguine about that like that aspect of the bill uh, than about the um, the offences behaviour aspect. Yeah, um... and you know. One of, one of the horrible aspects of developing technology in our world is the way in which the internet and social media you know, are subject often to gross abuse. Um, and so it may well be that some form of additional legislation is required for that. So I think the jury's out on that one, but not on the, not on the first part of the, of the legislati- legislation itself. Yeah. I mean, me, you know, personally speaking, I, I, I kind of feel that you may run into some of the same problems that, you know, the first part of the bill has and that, you know, is quite difficult to police um, the internet or, or all of it. You know, there is obviously certain sites which you can and I suppose maybe if, if you're searching for um, specific words well, and I'd phrases... Well, I'd like to the point but, I made earlier that um, you, you can't because this is, a, what, I mean, it is the World Wide Web. Mm. You cannot um, police it systematically and you cannot police it universally. But you can certainly teach some individuals some lessons. And to quote the French, pour encourager les autres, to encourage the others not to do this, because they don't necessarily know uh, when they will be visited by the constabulary. I mean, if you take one example of this, you know, the horrible crime of paedophilia. Uh, I mean, the number of individuals who have been guilty on that, who have been arrested, charged, and prosecuted over the last 10 years is very, very significant. Uh, 
So it's not as if the authorities are impotent in the face of this violence, um, which can sometimes appear, uh, you know, the kind of abuse of technology. Yeah, I suppose it is with with anything. You can't um, you can't solve no um, everything. You can't have a perfect solution. Yeah. Um, otherwise, perhaps half the population would be in quote Gordon Jackson QC in the jail unquote. Yeah. Um, so you can't have you can't have perfect control, but you can. But 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 the alternative of doing nothing is much worse. Mm. So, what extent do you think has the um, kind of popular perception, the kind of media portrayal, um, if you will, of football fans as you know these thugs and hooligans? Um, contributed to you know the bill being kind of rushed through. Well, there's al- there's always been this this uh, this problem um, because it's a class problem. Um, the uh, football has long been ever since the last quarter of the the 19th century when it first developed in uh, in Europe and then spread across the world. It's always been a working man's um, game. It's always been the game of the working classes. Uh, and it's um, it's uh, been quite easy, uh, given some of the behaviour that's occurred uh, over the last hundred odd years. It's been quite easy for the middle classes, professional classes, and upper classes, to sneer and condemn some aspects, uh, some aspects of that. I mean, it's very interesting that um, alcohol is not banned in uh, rugby matches, but it is banned at football matches. Do you think that's something that uh, should change? It's very difficult to know. I mean, I think you've got to deal with practical realities. Uh, there is no doubt at all that there are individuals turning up to matches, even with even the context of this ban, um, who are drunk and can people can often behave in ways they would not otherwise do if they were if they were under the under under the influence. Um, certainly, I think that there should be. Um, you know, there should be some maybe some form of, of partial experimentation to see how things go. I mean, the other aspect, which is, you know, which is a bit, uh, you know, concerning, is you know, if you take the, uh, you know, the uh, these booths or parts of grounds that are sold off to corporate diners, those uh, lunches, some of which I have been to by invitation, can be. Extremely boozy, yeah. uh, and they are looking at from behind the plate glass windows at the the pros who are only allowed to have a a bovril or a coffee or a a lemonade uh-huh. at half time. A Capri Sun usually, um, but uh, I think I, mean, I, I, I don't find that I'm not I'm not I'm not comfortable with that. Mm. But of course, the police answer would be that. Um, these people normally, quote, behave themselves, unquote, whereas uh, they can't be certain that the multitudes on the terraces will do the same. I think maybe my issue with it is that, you know, a lot of these laws, um, of course, the alcohol ban and then um, the offensive behaviour bill, they're made by people who, um, you maybe get the impression that they've not really been to a football match or certainly not been to an Old Firm match or a Celtic or a Rangers match and they're maybe just reacting to um, a kind of, a media frenzy, almost. Yeah, because the, um, the the people that make this legislation, of course, are not the judges or the the sheriffs or the lawyers. The people that make the legislation are politicians, mm. and so they have got to be conscious of public opinion, or is the way they understand public opinion. Um, and uh, especially if you get a media 
which are obsessed uh, with the old firm and with activities associated with them, then it's quite easy, it's quite obvious uh, how you're going to get pressure uh, for some form of, of intervention, or the phrase, do something about it. Uh, and because then it becomes part of the political agenda, some, some politicians are, are easily beguiled into taking action. So what is the future then for the Offensive Behaviour Act? Do you think it will be... Um well, there are two possibilities. Uh, it will go, which I doubt, um, because it would be a considerable loss of face to the uh, Scottish Government, or it might be diluted in some part uh, or in whole. They'll, they'll take time to reflect upon it and see what has to be done. They, they certainly can't, they can't do nothing because um, there has been the will of the Parliament. This is a non-binding decision by Parliament. Uh, uh, but but they can't just ignore it because it's, it's been a democratic uh, a democratic statement by the Scottish Parliament um, and the majority has spoken. So there will be changes, but it's very difficult to, to know how far they will be. Um, my own gut feeling is that they will not be entirely comprehensive and that the bill will not be comprehensively ditched. Do you think the actual um, issue of sectarianism do you think it is maybe exaggerated a wee bit you talked before about him you know the obviously we have the media here and a lot of it is kind of sport and football based and there's a lot of kind of focus on the old firm do you think it is maybe a fair amount of social scientific research on the extent of this beast called sectarianism now nobody can deny that uh, Scotland I mean there would be I think academic unanimity about the fact that Scotland had a problem, um, probably and a serious problem actually, particularly in the west of Scotland, through up until say the later part of last century, say the 1970s and 1980s. But but a number of um, of researchers uh, have shown that uh, the number of um, sectarian based in uh, uh, sectarian based incidents. Um, especially under the 2003 uh, sectarian aggravated breach of the peace legislation, are, are quite minimal. I think last year, for example, in terms of sectarian breach, uh, and I think about 60% of, of these cases were involving people name-calling police in a sectarian way. In other words, it wasn't really to do with uh, individuals who were, um, you know, uh, doing this in the street among ordinary Ordinary, ordinary, ordinary people. I think there was about somewhere between five to six hundred cases in 2015-16. Same year, the same number of charges. There was about four and a half thousand uh, racially aggravated charges reported to procurators fiscal. And in the same period, there was something like between thirty to thirty-five thousand charges uh, reported of domestic abuse. So. You know, I rest my case. Um, that there might be that, that there's still bigotry around. You can't destroy that in a generation. But um, things like systematic discrimination in the labour market are long dead, and um, the uh, society's moved on. And don't forget, we are living to some extent now in a post-religious age. And what's left with sectarianism is, I think, what you would call it tribalism. Um, it's a way of differentiating, quote, the other, unquote. The other, in this case, happens to be Rangers.
we're supporting people from a Protestant heritage and Celtic supporting people from a Catholic heritage. Um, but very few of them in total would ever see the inside of a church. Do you think this issue will ever go away? Um... Well, it may, it, it, it may not go away because if you look at the position in Spain with Barcelona and Real Madrid, if you look at the position, you know, the, 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 the uh, decades-old um, rivalries between different football teams in Manchester and Liverpool, etc., uh, it, it, it continues. The, the, the slight differentiation in, in, in Scotland is, of course, the religious dimension, or what I would now call the tribal religious dimension. But Liverpool had that up until about the 1960s, 1970s, you know, Everton and Liverpool. And, and that seems to have gone. So you, 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 um, you might see the same thing you might see in, in future decades it becoming much less intense. But the one qualification I would make to that is all of this stuff is handed down by tradition through families. And that's a very important influence, which even education and other influences can't necessarily combine to dilute entirely. Um, yeah, I'll just again kind of change topic here. Um go back to the Scottish national team at general um, what links if any are there between the national team, the Scottish national team and you know nationalism the rise of nationalism um, the rise of this view of independence and, and, and the SNP um, well it's not very, not very much I would say um, for a couple of reasons the first is that one of the aspects of the rise of the Nationalist but the Scottish National Party has been that in the last, say, 30 to 40 years, there's been a much stronger sense of Scottish identity has developed over that, that period. Um, and the second thing is that, and one aspect of that identity is, um, you know, the way, the way nations make identities is they, 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 use, they use symbols, they use myths, uh, they use history, they use markers of identity. And the fact that there's a separate and individual Scottish Football Association and there's always been national teams on that and being the people's game, if you will, then clearly that is one element. But it's one element of a very, very complex set of markers of identity. Um, uh, because sport is, is a very important, then it's not irrelevant, but I wouldn't say it was as it was uh, the central feature. And the second reason, of course, is that um, in recent years, especially compared to the position before 1960-1970, the Scottish national team has performed at a very mediocre level. And uh, I think that there's almost been a healthy you know, core of supporters, but I don't think that... I don't get the impression that many Scots now regard it the football team, that is, as the um, the standard bearer um, for for Scotland, which, especially during the old matches uh, between England and Scotland, I think very many people did then regard it as the way to get back at the old enemy on the football field. Um, in a kind of similar vein to that last question, um, of course, um, kind of vocal sections of both Celtic and Rangers both kind of came out in support of either side uh, of um, the independence referendum and the run up to it um, 
did that have any impact do you think on the kind of overall result well the, the thing to remember is that uh, you, you would find Celtic supporters um, who would uh, vote for the union continuation of the union and some Rangers supporters who voted for independence but by and large you're right you know if you look at the thing in a very general way you could say that there was Celtic supporters are more likely to vote for independence in 2014 than Rangers supporters um, which is an extraordinary turnaround um, given the hostility of uh, people in the Catholic minority as late as the 70s, probably even into the 80s, uh, the hostility towards nationalism, even hostility towards devolution, because many of them um, believed, especially the older generation, who'd been through some difficult times earlier in the 20th century, um, through discrimination, etc., that it simply would enhance Protestant um, hegemony in Scotland. Um, so the uh, the transformation has been extraordinary, especially from my point of view as an historian. Uh, because if you look at the if you look at the evidence for 2014 and the Christian denominations in particular, uh, then people from the Catholic background, although most of them voted for the status quo voted them, vote, most of them voted no, uh, something of the order of 34 to 35% of them voted yes, and that was considerably ahead of the other Christian denominations, even the, the Church of Scotland. Um, and uh, uh, so I think one of the reasons for that was, if you look at the voting patterns overall, you'll see that the areas which were most pro-independence were the west of Scotland, Glasgow in particular, mm. Dundee and some other areas. It was a bit like Brexit in one sense. It was the working class communities mm. in Scotland who were mainly in favour of independence. And to this day, although there has been massive upward social mobility among Catholic people, to this day there, has been, there is in some parts of west central Scotland and some of its more disadvantaged parts um, strong survival of uh, Catholic communities. Um, so, so I think uh, I think I think that that was especially after the the alienation from Labour, the Labour Party, that is, which occurred over the, the previous the previous ten years. Right, um, Tom. Thank you very much uh, for taking the time to do this interview. Okay, no problem. Hello and welcome to the Busboy Scottish Football Podcast with me, your host Callum Scott, an unfamiliar position for me today, but I'm delighted to say that I'm joined in the line by Scotland International and ex Kilmarnock and Clyde player, current Derby Championship player, Craig Bryson. Craig, how you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm not bad, mate, yourself? Yeah, good, mate. Thanks very much for coming on. Obviously, the last time we spoke, I uh, managed to get you in the Scotland squad, so you can give us a wee thanks for that. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was nice, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers again for speaking to us, Craig, and giving up your time to, to come on the podcast and that. So we'll just kick off with your early kind of footballing memories. So how did it come about for you? Did you always want to be a footballer or did it just come about naturally? Uh, I, th- I think it just came about naturally, to be honest. I think my mum my and dad just used to take me to, to football when I was younger um, in East Kilbride, like a couple of nights a week and it kind of just grew from that. Um, 
they were they weren't to appreciate. They just it was basically just up to me if I wanted to go and and obviously when I was there I enjoyed it and, and kept on going and yeah, well this is where we are today. <laughs> That's it, mate. So obviously the club you started off with was Clyde, so how did that move come about? Yeah, I was actually playing with Motherwell, uh, probably between the age of fourteen and sixteen. Um, got offered a full time contract there. And then at the same time, Clyde offered me a full-time contract. Um, I thought I would drop down the division and go to Clyde when they were in the first division, so I thought I'd had more chance of playing first-team quicker. Um, it it kind of worked out all right in the end. Aye, definitely, 100%. Um, so what's your kind of memories of Clyde as a whole? Obviously, we've got to talk about the Celtic game briefly, but I know it's a club that you still got a big place in your heart. Yeah, it was it was always excellent. They gave me a platform uh, when I was eighteen uh, to to basically play first team football. Uh, the first season I was there, they were unlucky not to get promoted. I think they, they only lost out to Inverness uh, near the end of the season. You can see how well Inverness have done since then, just mm-hmm. the NSPL. So yeah, I, I remember that, and that also gave me a taste for it. Basically, the next three or four seasons, I was I was a regular and. And really enjoyed it there. I think I think it's a great club. They always give you a chance because you don't have the money like a lot of Scottish clubs to go and to go and buy for. So mm-hmm. you know when you're at Clyde that you'll get a chance in the first team if you're good enough. Yeah, that's it, mate. Obviously, you can still see that they've still got youth policy. But does it sadden you to see them kind of um, in the fourth tier of Scottish football at the moment? Yeah, of course, of course. Um, I also look out for old clubs and, and want them to do well. So. When I left Clyde, they were actually in the first division, so, so to see them be down there, it's it's not ideal. But um, they've got good backing. There's good people at the club, and they're actually doing not bad just now. So hopefully they can get promoted and, and start working their way back up the leagues again. That's it. So when obviously you kind of burst onto the scene, uh, if I'm right in saying you're just kind of bleached blonde hair at the time, uh, <laughs> if I had yeah. to remind you of that one, but. Uh, when you scored against Celtic um, in the Scottish Cup third round, I think it was the third round back then, and also Roy Keane's debut. So, what's your memories of that day? Obviously, it was one of the most remarkable, uh, like kind of achievements in Scottish football at the time for a club like Clyde to put out Celtic, especially with the calibre of Roy Keane and that making his debut for Celtic. Yeah, obviously, I can remember that day really well. Obviously, building up to the game, um, nobody actually. Like remembered Clyde were playing basically. It was just getting spoken about Celtic and Roy Keane and and at the time I think we that at the start of that season Clyde had done trials to get um a team together basically. So that made it almost special. But yeah, leading up to the game everybody was only talking about Roy Keane and Celtic. So we kinda went in the back burner and we knew that we had nothing to lose. Celtic had everything to lose and if we went out there and, and played our best and, and Celtic weren't at it on the day, then you never know what's going to happen and that would be the case. I think I think in the game we had two or three disallowed goals as well, so I think we were well worthy of the win that day. Yeah. It was, it's definitely one of the, the greatest days of my career. That's brilliant, yeah, because as you say, it could have been a lot more with the disallowed goals and that. So, um, prior to your move to Kilmarnock, can I right and saying that you had a trial with Derby, obviously many years before you ended up you down, am I right in saying that? Yeah, basically uh, from that Clyde Celtic game, I, th- I think I went down to to Derby that, it was either that January or in the summer, um, Billy Davis was the manager, and 
at the time, they never had a reserve team, and they didn't think I was I was good enough to play in the first team. Um, so so you just have to accept it and work hard. And, and round about that time, they moved to Kamala Club. So I thought if I can, obviously Derby aren't going to sign me. If I can go and do well in the SPL, then you never know what can happen in the future. I'll, I'll hopefully get another chance to come back down to England and prove to everybody that I was good enough. Yeah, that's it, Craig. Because I know, obviously, we'll we'll come back to to that obviously regarding Billy Davis about a certain hat trick that you scored so we'll come to that later on but um, football, it? <laughs> that's it that's it so um like obviously the move to Kilmarnock came about obviously all by his side I'm a massive Kilmarnock fan a big admirer of yourself um you've obviously got fond memories of Kilmarnock so can you tell us a bit about the club and about how the move came about etc uh, it just just kind of came about like any other transfer my, my agent told me Kilmarnock were interested I knew obviously about Jim Jeffries and Billy Brown and, and how they'd been about the Scottish game and, and done really well for Hearts and they were doing quite well for Kilmarnock so yeah I was also delighted to get that move and in my career it was probably the right time to take the step up to from the first division to the SPL and I think it, at, at all three of the clubs really the it couldn't have gone any better, to be honest. Obviously, the progression is there for everybody to see, but going to Kilmarnock and, and getting a chance to play in the SPL with like, experienced managers and good experienced pros at the club uh, has only helped me in, in my career. Yeah, that's it, mate. So, um, what's your... Like, What's your memories of Kilmarnock and obviously Jim Jeffries as well? Because I mean, he was a guy who obviously gave, you, as you pointed out, he was a guy who gave you a shot uh, in the top flight. So, what was he like to play under? Eh, uh, really strict. <laughs> it was a good, good last year in the week, and then when it came to a game day, it was, it was a bit different uh, to say the least. Especially at half time and, and full time, if it wasn't going that well. But <laughs> no, I owe him and Billy Brown a lot for giving me the chance um, when other teams probably wouldn't. Or didn't. Um, I obviously had great memories at, at, at Kilmarnock. Obviously, finishing the top six and and stuff, and be, beating Celtic and Robbie Keane's debut, which is which is a good double for me, and <laughs> beating the Turkins, which was which was a nice night as well. But I think obviously beating Air United in the cup when we played them was also a good occasion because the teams hadn't played like in some time. Yeah. Obviously scoring in that game down it. Somerset was a was a good memory for me. And yeah, it was a it was a bit I wouldn't say heartbreaking, but but when I left, uh, I think I'd been at Derby maybe a year. Then I was sitting in the, the house one day watching Kilmarnock win win the League Cup and thinking that could have been me as well. But <laughs> yeah, it's one of them you just have to go on with and accept that. Yep, no, that's it, Craig. Um, obviously, you briefly touched on the the Ayrshire Derby there. Um, well, obviously, me being down here, I'm the only Kilmarnock fan on the Burstball podcast. I got a wee bit of stick at times. Um, and let's say, can you tell us a wee bit about the Ayrshire Derby, about what the atmosphere in that is like? Because a lot of people don't even realise it exists to some extent. I mean, people think it's not that big a deal, but you know firsthand when the fixture comes about, there's plenty of supporters come out of the woodwork for it. Yeah, I think that's the same for every derby. Um, the fans really get up for it. It's... Well, especially especially down here, like at Derby and, and Forest, it's the first first game everybody looks for. And I'm sure if Kilmarnock and, and Air were in the same league, that would be the same. Because I know, you know, always when I was there, when the cup cup draws were getting drawn, I'd I'd always wanted to draw Air. So 
Yeah, I was, I was obviously delighted uh, to play in that and score in it. And, and as you say, the, the atmosphere even down the air was, was good. Um, obviously, Kilmarnock sold out out there a bit, and I'm sure Air brought uh, a good support to Kilmarnock at the time. And it was just just a really good occasion to be involved in, just because the teams hadn't played in in a bit of time. And uh, you know what it what it means to to the club and to the fans just to beat your rivals. And no matter how big or small people think the rival rivalry is, it's it's all about the fans. And it was even the same when I was at Clyde and we were playing Party Thistle. Not many people would probably still see that as a derby, apart from both sets of fans. And it's always nice to get one over your rivals. Yep, that's it, mate. That's it. Um, so obviously. When I, I obviously told you yesterday, I was hoping to do some quick fire questions, and you obviously seen a few of the kind of explicit questions last night, which I'll not repeat over there. But um, uh, the most common question that came up really, because uh, it was mostly just come up, it was all Commander fans that got involved, uh, was just, will you ever come back to the club? I know obviously you're very happy at Derby, but I've got to ask the, the listeners' questions at the end of the day. Yeah, to be honest, mate, I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd always say. Um, since I've been down in Derby and since I basically left it, I'd, I'd love to go back to Kilmarnock and love to go back to Clyde one day. And I've I've recently just bought a house uh, in the Kilmarnock area for when I'm finished in, in England and decide to move back home. So you never know what can happen one day. Well, it would also be nice to come back. Well, that's it. Feel free to make the move north in January if you want. I think we could be doing with you. So, so that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that might be a bit soon, but <laughs> <laughs> you've still got a lot to do down there anyway. So yeah. obviously that brings us on nicely to, to Derby. Um, obviously you left Kilmarnock. You were captain of Kilmarnock at the time. Left big move for you at the time. So what was your thoughts on that? And obviously I know you rate Nigel Clough really highly as a manager. So it was him that brought you to the club. Yeah, he was excellent for me. It was, it was the same as like Jim Jeffries and, and all my other managers. He. He believed in me. He he came up and watched me in the SPL when really I didn't have to. He was uh, obviously looking to try and get value for for money because Derby at that time never really spent much. So for him to, to travel up and watch me in the SPL, then travel down for for his Derby games was was excellent. And yeah, I owe him and his his management team so much in in football and, and in my life basically because also they moved and moved to Derby has has changed my life and my my career. Yeah, absolutely, mate. So, obviously, um, I think you've got a good relationship with the fans down there. So, what have they been like to uh, to play for, and what they like when you when they welcomed you to the club and that? Because they seem to be a passionate set of supporters. Yeah, yeah, really, really passionate. We we get about thirty thousand fans at our game, and I think I think we've got over about twenty thousand season ticket holders. So, it's it's a really big club. Um, everybody in Derby actually supports Derby, so. Everybody's always stopping you, asking you, and especially in this week, building up to the Nottingham Forest game, uh, the town gets that bit more excited and that more buzz about it. Uh, but but ever since I signed, they've been excellent with me. I think because they know every time I go on the pitch and I, I pull the strip on, that will give them a hundred percent. And that, I think that's all the other fans want. They just want to see players giving a hundred percent for their club. And I've done that every game. And yeah, we've we've got a good relationship. Yep, that's it. And um, obviously, it would have helped. Uh, right in your first season, you won Players Player of the Year or Fans Player of the Year. So, and I think uh, you've won it twice. For you've been down there. Yeah, I've, uh, I've won it twice in uh, f- I think five years, and I think I think I'm only like one or like three people that's actually done that. So, 
Yeah, it's, it's obviously nice. It's, you must be doing something right with the fans are voting you for play of the year. So, as you say, we've, we've got a good relationship and I've still got about two and a half years left in my contract. So, hopefully I can see it out and, and maybe get another one. And if they're happy, then I'm happy. Your time at Derby seems to be a happy one, but you've... I think I've calculated you've played under about seven managers in your time at Derby. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Aye, so, like that. so what's that been like? Obviously, I know Nigel Clough's been a big inspiration and you were gutted when he left and that, but what's the likes of like McLaren and the other guys been like to work under McLaren, Nigel Pearson? Uh, and has, has it been difficult for you to acclimatise to new managers coming in all the time? Yeah, I've, I've kind of been used to it, mate. I think, I think this is either my 13th or 14th professional season. And I've had about that in the same amount of managers. I think I've had 13, 14 managers in my career. So I've never really had that long with any one manager. So you just kind of get used to it. It's football. Um, I think these days managers have got like five or six games. And if I'm not doing well, then somebody else comes in and then they've got another five or six games or whatever it is. So I think as, as players, you just have to accept it. The clubs, uh, the decision clubs make and you have to go on with it. At the end of the day, you're you're paid to go out and play uh, on a game day, so you, know, you you have to deal with it. Obviously, you get on well with some managers and, and maybe not so well with other managers, but it's what it is. Every manager's got different ideas and, and different philosophies, and you just have to adapt it. Obviously, you mentioned earlier on, well, I actually brought it up, obviously, your hat-trick against Nottingham Forest, so we'll go into that just now, because obviously that was, that was an incredible achievement for you to do that, and obviously, if you want to use a wee bit well, you almost touched on it earlier on about the kind of background. It was Billy Davis that took you down to Derby. Turned out you scored a hat trick against him, and uh, and uh, the Derby uh, the, uh, last uh, sorry, two thousand thirteen, I think it was two thousand fourteen. So, yeah. uh, do you want to tell us a wee bit about that and how it felt for you? Uh, I wasn't really interested about Billy Davis, to be honest. Managers make decisions. And, and they live by their decisions. At the time, it was probably right that I probably wasn't ready to play in Derby's first team, but that's how it goes. I went, I went back up to Kilmarnock, I got some more experience and came back down and said when when he was the manager of Nottingham Forest, we, we played him and, and we beat him 5-0. Uh, so, and I think he got sacked the next day, but I, I was getting nothing against him. He made the decision and that's what it was, but it was just a, a really great day for me. It was, it was probably the best day in my career, uh, by far. I don't think um, they'd scored a hat-trick in a game for like 118 years or something, so it's not something that happens all the time. And, and on that day, everything just went for me. I think I only had about three shots in goal and, and three went in, so <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was nice. And also in a derby, yeah, it makes it extra special. Yeah, that's it. Um, and obviously... Is your time, obviously we've still got a lot of football still to be played at Derby, um, clear speaking to you, you think it's a great, club, a great club, but has it been disappointing, obviously you guys always seem to do really well and always just fall short come, come kind of playoff time of the year, um, so there's obviously ambition for you and the club to play in the Premier League. Yeah, of course, of course, we, well, I, I turned down the chance a couple of years to go to, go to the Premiership to stay at Derby because... I wanted to show them a bit of loyalty because what they've done for me in my career. So I always said that if I'm going to play in the Premiership, I want to play in it with Derby. So, yeah, that, that's the ambition for me. That's the ambition for the club. And, and that's why we train hard every day to try and to try and get there. I just said, like, we've obviously not made it. We, 
they keep on falling away near the end of the season, but it's how it is. Hopefully, in the, in the past few years, if the season finished at Christmas, would have been all right. But <laughs> <laughs> obviously, it goes on to me, and yeah, we've, we've fell short in, in recent years. We obviously started the season really bad this year, but we've, we've picked up now, and we're only a few points off the playoff positions, and there's still a long way to go. So, hopefully, come the end of this, this season, we can still be strong. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, so we'll move on now to your kind of international career. I know I mentioned it in the kind of opening uh, segment that I did there. So to kind of bring on to that, obviously, what's been your opinions of that? I mean, you have been overlooked for the Scotland squad too many times to count. Uh, when you know you're seeing other guys getting a shot. Um, when you were well, obviously that season you had with Derby and you scored the hat trick with Nottingham Forest. I mean you were absolutely outstanding and you've turned down moves to the Premier League. So has it been frustrating for you to kinda see guys get picked before you when you could be doing a kinda similar if not better job in the side? But obviously it's a manager's decision and that and I know yeah. only football players can only say so much, but it must be frustrating. Nah, it just is what it is. Like I've I've been overlooked at every level for Scotland. I think I'm coming up to playing like 500 career games now um, and I've got one cap for the 19s one for the 21s and I think it's three for the first team so I've not I've not really had a, an international career throughout my whole uh, career to be honest and yeah I've, I've just accepted it now Do you think um, maybe the clubs that you've played for previously has hampered that? Like, do you think there is an old firm bias when it comes to selecting um, players for the national team because obviously I think Cammy Bell should have had more caps as well in his time at Kilmarnock. Obviously, uh, uh, under-21 level now when you were at Clyde, you were getting overlooked. So do you think there is definitely an agenda to pick players that play for the old firm opposed to guys that yeah. play with provincial clubs? Yeah, I think there probably is. Um, obviously, don't really want to say too much on it, but I think, yeah. I think the bigger club you're at, the, the more chance you've got of being picked for the national team. I don't even know if that's just Scotland, but it could it could be other club, uh, countries as well. But yeah, that, that that's just the way it seems to be. But yeah, it's one of them. There's there's not much I can do if I don't get picked. I just need to keep on doing well for Derby and, and see what happens. No, that's it. So um, to carry on, obviously you've played in both England and Scotland. There's been a lot of debate about the game up here in recent years. Is there? Is there such a big gulf between the Championship in England and the top flight in Scotland uh, for you personally, a guy that's played at both levels? It's, it's obviously been, well, I don't know, five and a half years since I've played in the SPL. Uh, so obviously a lot changes. But but when it, what only thing I really noticed is when I came down here, it was, it's a lot more physical. Um, I think, I, I don't know if it just looks so much, so much better because of the crowds. I mean, like mm-hmm. most stadiums you go to, they're they're usually full, so I don't know if that gives off a different perception of what what it's actually like. But yeah, I, I don't think there's maybe, maybe like with the bottom teams in the SPL, uh, there'll be a big difference. But the ones at the top, I'm I'm not too sure. I, don't, I think I'm biased more towards Scotland as well because I've played there, and I think there is a lot of good players in Scotland that just need the chance, uh, like myself and like a few others that have come down and done well. Um, and it's where I don't know if, if people in England kind of look down on the Scottish game a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think it's a lot better than what people say. Yeah, um, obviously our podcast, we try and talk up the Scottish game as much as possible, so that'll be a welcome comment for us. Um, 
So in regards to the future, obviously, despite the fact you'll be signing for Kelly hopefully in a year or two, uh, aside of that, um, are you get any ambitions to get into management or coaching? Or obviously, you've got guys like James Fowler, Gavin Skelton, that they played with that have just recently managed at Queen of the South, Alan yeah. Johnson as well. Have you got any ambitions to, to get into management yourself, Craig? Uh, no, not, not as it stands. Uh, I don't think I'd like to be a manager. I don't know if I'd, I'd probably prefer to be like a number two or, or just a coach or something, but as like for being the main gaffer, then no, that's, that's probably not for me. Right, no, that's fair enough. Um, so, obviously, Craig, that's our interview came to an end now, so I just want to thank you very much for the time you've given us in the Bus Ball podcast, and I'm sure the listeners will be looking forward to, to giving it a wee listen when it goes out in hopefully the next week or so, so thanks very much, Craig. No bother, mate, all the best. So there you go. Hope you really enjoyed those two exclusive Bus Ball interviews. It goes without saying a massive thank you, a big thank you to both Sir Tom and Craig for helping us out and giving us some of their valuable time to talk about the issues that matter to you. We'll be back early next week looking back on hopefully an exciting weekend of Scottish football. In the meantime, get on the website busballpodcast.net and have a look at some of our iconic games. We'll have a podcast next week. We'll then also be recording our Christmas special and also the um, iconic games podcast that will be a paid for episode that will go out on Patreon. All the best, take care and please tell a friend about us.